Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 3.12, The Canadian Invasion of Queen Anne's War. Last time, we had discussed the causes of the War of Spanish Succession, as well as introducing the colonial version of that war, Queen Anne's War. With the English facing threats from a quickly expanding French force, the Spanish in the South, and the changing loyalties of the native tribes, a clash had become virtually inevitable. The war began in the South, with the British marching towards St. Augustine in Spanish-held Florida. Despite being forced to retreat from the battle, the English had devastated the region. Their now-former governor, John Moore, would continue to lead attacks on Spanish and Indian settlements for years to come. This week, we are going to spend most of our time shifting our attention back towards the North. As had been the case for the last 25 years, conflict between the French and the English had largely played out on the New England frontiers. Once again, this is going to prove to be the primary location for a whole new round of aggressions. By the time that 1702 rolled around, New England was exhausted. They had been in a state of near-constant upheaval since King Philip's War. Between external threats and internal divisions, this was not a people who had had an easy time over the past quarter century. Frustratingly, however, is the fact that many of the problems kept getting kicked down the road. Little changed following King William's War, meaning that those underlying problems that had led to the conflict still existed. The French were one of the biggest instigators of all of this. The French had designs for a while now of expanding into the interior of North America. However, in order to do that, they needed to check the English. Having the Indian allies attack the English along the frontiers could prove to be an effective means by which to hem the English in and block further westward expansion. In the best case, the hope was that the English would simply decide that holding the frontier towns was too much trouble and abandon them altogether, moving back towards the more substantial population centers and the safety that came along with those kinds of numbers. The French were at a distinct disadvantage in the conflict when it came to pure numbers. The English colonies boasted well over 100,000 colonists by this point, compared to roughly 15,000 for the French. However, it is worth considering that, while outnumbered, the French held a far more cohesive empire in North America than did the English. The English colonies were still all distinct and separate entities. This high level of disunity meant that despite the English having such a large advantage when it came to population, it was a largely inefficient populace. There were simply too many people calling the shots. The French, on the other hand, were far more cohesive, which meant that they had the ability to mount a large-scale response. This is to say absolutely nothing about the fact that the English had made a lot of enemies amongst the Indians, who were oftentimes more than happy to flock over to the French side in a conflict. Further complicating the situation is that, initially at least, it was Massachusetts alone standing on a war footing. Their frontier was particularly vulnerable and had been attacked repeatedly over the last quarter of a century. Frontier towns running from New York to Maine were generally garrisoned by small groups of militia left to protect the frontier. Despite these relatively small defenses, the frontier did mark the front line of the conflict, and everybody knew it. 
New York was also in possession of a good amount of frontier. Frontiers that were often fought over. However, in New York, they had a few reasons to want to avoid war. Paramount to them not wanting to get involved was the fact that the Iroquois had declared themselves neutral. This means that the English could not rely on them to do the heavy lifting in a conflict. Economic considerations also existed that made a conflict seem a whole lot less desirable. Albany had long been trading with the French. This trade had been very beneficial to the New York colony, and they were not that anxious to see it stop. The French, likewise, depended on the trade from New York and had little interest in disrupting that flow. Not to mention that the French had won a big diplomatic victory in securing the neutrality of the Iroquois. An attack on New York could risk the Iroquois' neutrality, which could have been a major problem for the French. As a result, New York and France were largely held in check with each other, with neither wanting to disrupt the delicate balance that had been established. Connecticut and Rhode Island, being further inland and insulated by Massachusetts, were far less susceptible to attacks on the frontiers, and therefore only would give assistance when absolutely necessary. New Hampshire did exist along the frontier, however, it was still sparsely populated as compared to Massachusetts, so their ability to contribute was significantly less. Fighting would break out in eastern Maine, where the French were able to convince the Abenaki tribe to begin attacks along the border. As we have seen time and time again, these attacks employed those quick hit-and-run tactics that had proven to be so successful. This time would prove little different, as the English once again struggled to figure out an effective response to these hit-and-run attacks. By the time that the English were ready to organize a response, the threat was over and the Indians had melted back into the woods. The governor of Canada, the Marquis de Vaudreuil, wanted to keep the English tied up in the defense of their frontier, which would limit their ability to ever strike back offensively against Canada. While most of these attacks remained relatively limited in scope, it was the 1704 attack on Deerfield that would really shock everybody. This is not the first time that Deerfield has been hit with a violent raid. We discussed them getting attacked during King Philip's War. However, in this instance, it was the attack on Deerfield that really exemplified how serious the situation was. Coming on February 29, 1704, for the residents of Deerfield, the approximately 270 of them, the attack was not exactly unexpected. Deerfield was relatively isolated, and its position along the frontier had long made it a particularly vulnerable target. Throughout the fall of 1703, the colonists were aware of plans, or at least the rumors of plans, to attack the settlement. These warnings came from New York, who warned that they were hearing rumors that planning was now underway to attack Deerfield. When the attack came, it was a combined force of roughly 250 French, Abenakis, and Cognawagas. The command of this force lie in the hands of Ertel de Roville. The attack had caught the colonists completely by surprise, as they really did believe that the rough northeast winter would offer them a degree of protection at least until the spring. At the end of the attack, at least 40 colonists lay dead, and the town was completely burnt. With the attack over and the forces pulling out, an additional 111 colonists were forced to march along as captives 
Many of them would die along the way. The attack was absolutely brutal, and it really did shock everybody. The immediate response in Massachusetts was to increase hostilities by offering scalp bounties. If a colonist delivered the scalp of an Indian, they were paid for it. At least in theory, the scalping was only meant to be done amongst hostile tribes. Though, scalp hunters quickly figured out that nobody could tell the difference between the scalp of a friendly Indian or an enemy Indian. The pay was actually slightly better if you brought the Indian back alive. However, with so much increased risk, most chose the option of scalping them. Brutal policies aside, nobody thought that scalp bounties was anything more than a placeholder tactic. The Massachusetts government realized that they were going to need a more formal response to the attack on Deerfield, or else they would risk losing control over the frontier forever. Chosen to lead the battle for the Bay Colony was none other than our old friend, Benjamin Church. If that name rings a bell but you cannot place it, he was one of the leaders way back during King Philip's War. So the guy does at least have a pretty good idea of what he is doing. For what it is worth, there were some early attempts made at forming a peace between New England and New France. Europe, frankly, did not really notice, nor care, much about the conflict in North America. This was a European war, and the North American theater was little more than a minor nuisance. We know, for instance, that in 1706, there was an attempt between Dudley and Voudrail to establish a neutrality pact. Note that this would not have been a true treaty, as neither Dudley nor Voudrail had that actual power. But it would have at least given the men a way to avoid further fighting. Despite a hopeful prisoner exchange, Dudley would end up rejecting the peace agreement in 1706. While the frontier threat certainly existed, it was the French-held Port Royal that caused the most concern. Located in the French-held Acadia, Port Royal posed a serious risk both to English shipping and served as a point where an attack could be launched from. We have briefly discussed Port Royal before. It was the area seized by William Phipps during King William's War. However, today I want to give some more information on the area we are talking about. Port Royal was located on the modern-day site of Annapolis Royal in Nova Scotia. All of this was part of the larger Acadia province, which included Nova Scotia, eastern Quebec, and ran south into what is portions of modern-day Maine, with the Kennebec River forming the southern boundary of Acadia. Taking Acadia seemed like a difficult, though not impossible, chore for the English. After all, they had taken the port once already during King William's War. The problem is that despite the Massachusetts government wanting to take the port, not everybody in the colony was on board with the idea. Among those who really were not fans were several high-ranking Massachusetts merchants. Their complaint was that Port Royal was a relatively weak port. The French there were not self-sufficient, and they depended on trade with New England. Sure, the English capturing Port Royal would be great and all, but you know what is even better? A weak French colony that was dependent on goods from New England. A trade that would have nearly instantly disappeared should the English win the day. The colonists therefore took a strange middle road. They went ahead and in 1707 attempted, twice actually, 
to take Port Royal. However, despite a pretty clear advantage, both times the English failed to actually conquer the port. It's not even really that the English lost the battles at Port Royal, as much as it is that they chose not to win. Yes, the French did put up a resistance, but the English simply failed to ever really push that hard to capture the port. Looking at this broadly, one must assume that the commercial entanglement between Port Royal and indeed all of Acadia and the Massachusetts colonists can help explain the lackluster attempt to capture the port. What this move also did was enrage a lot of the colonists back in Massachusetts, and fingers began to get pointed at Governor Joseph Dudley. The outcry against him was in so many ways similar to the anger pointed towards William Berkeley in the run-up to Bacon's Rebellion, when he had been accused of putting commercial interests over the safety of the colonists. Plus, it really isn't like anybody needed to do anything to make Dudley unpopular. People very much remembered his role during the Dominion, and it did little to help with his popularity. In this instance, therefore, it would be Joseph Dudley who would bear the brunt of the colonists' criticism for failing to capture the port. This is going to start something of a trend for Dudley, who is, time and time again, going to find the finger pointed at him when things do not go exactly as planned. Regardless of Dudley's intentions, the fact remained that the colony continued to get hit from Indian raids, and the English response was somewhat lacking. On August 29th, 1708, the colony was attacked at the town of Haverville. What made the attack on Haverville so concerning was the location of the town, just some 35 miles from Boston. Well, the attack itself was not as bad as what we had seen in Deerfield. The location of the attack being so close to Boston put the colonists all on edge. Regardless of feelings towards Dudley, everybody in the colony was well aware that action was required. While an attack on Port Royal was at least something, the widespread feelings is that true security, if you actually wanted to get rid of the French threat, would only come with an attack on Quebec. Quebec had long been the epicenter for the French in Canada and was seen as the primary linchpin in the French-Canadian holdings. The problem is that nobody had much interest in taking the city. Everybody still remembers when William Phipps had attempted the same thing back in 1690 and was subsequently crushed. With the loss under the command of Phipps still in their memory, there was no real appetite for a repeat. With English forces spread thin, fighting the Great War of Spanish Succession, there was little hope that England itself could provide reinforcements for an attack. However, that would all start to change in 1709. Colonist Samuel Vetch was interested in a mission against Quebec. Vetch was just influential enough to suggest such a mission to the Board of Trade. The mission called for a force to approach from the south, moving from upstate New York through the Champlain Valley and towards Montreal. A second force would then sail south up the St. Lawrence River, and the two armies would come together at Quebec. Surprisingly, London agreed that the attack would be advantageous and agreed to send supplies and, most importantly, British regulars for the attack. This was in so many ways a stunning turn for the colonists 
who took the decision as evidence that England was finally realizing just how important a front they were on. As though to keep the nostalgia train running for this week, Francis Nicholson was sent to help plan the mission, arriving in April of 1709. The decision for a battle accomplished several other ends for the war. No longer was this going to be Massachusetts against the French. Now that Britain itself had signed off on the mission, intercolonial involvement was not simply requested. It was demanded. The combined force would include troops from Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, and, much to their considerable dismay, New York. The British, for their part, had pledged an additional 4,000 men. Likewise, four of the Iroquois nations had agreed to end their neutrality and join forces with the British. Everything out there right now would suggest that planning for the mission was going great. The colonies were cooperating with each other, and everything seemed to be coming together nicely for the invasion. There was, however, just one minor problem. While all of this preparation was going on at a fevered pitch, one component remained missing, much to the frustration of Vetch and Nicholson. That one component that remained missing, you ask? Well, that would be the British. Despite the ongoing preparations for battle, as the summer dragged on, there was absolutely no sign of British ships. Weather made the invasion of Canada a summertime activity. During the winter, the St. Lawrence River becomes choked with ice and would have been impossible to traverse. Making matters worse was not simply that the British were not arriving, but that there had been no word whatsoever from them either. It was not until October of 1709 that word officially came down that Britain was scrapping the mission, something that many on the ground had already figured out. The decision of the British to ghost the colonies was not something that went over well amongst the colonists. We have spent a lot of time over the course of this show talking about the rift between the colonists and the English across the ocean. Once again here, the colonists are made to feel like a complete afterthought. This really reinforces those feelings of anger towards the British that we have seen time and time again. To some extent, this raises the question we have already asked so many times. What is the role of the British North American colonies in the greater empire? Now, all was not lost, and the following year, 1710, the British did actually send men for the planned invasion. However, when the British ended up sending far fewer men than anticipated, attention shifted momentarily away from Quebec to the much easier to conquer Port Royal. Once again, led by Nicholson, the invasion of Port Royal was a pretty simple task. With six warships and 3,500 men, the 600 or so French soldiers at the port really had very little hope of keeping Port Royal out of English hands. With the capture of Port Royal, which was then renamed Annapolis Royal, much of the rest of Acadia fell under British control, with Vetch being named governor of the new province. Following the victory in Acadia, attention once again returned to the plan to take Quebec. With the war dragging on and emboldened by the decisive victory in Acadia, Britain once again set their eyes on Quebec. So what had changed? 
Well, for one thing, the war just kept dragging on, and Queen Anne was very anxious to find something to help bring it to an end. Furthermore, she had been visited by a group of delegates from the Iroquois Confederacy who attempted to convince her that she should spend more time focusing on the North American theater. While it is possible that she was truly touched by the group, it makes more sense that the Iroquois delegates also made her more acutely aware of how much more powerful the French would be if the Iroquois jumped ship and joined the French. Should the five nations become hostile, it would be nothing short of a disaster to New York and indeed all of New England. Pacification of the Iroquois aside, it also did not hurt that the Whigs were now out of power and the Tories had taken over the government. The Whigs had been much more interested in waging a fully European war. Under Tory leadership, the new Secretary of State, Henry St. John, was far more interested than his predecessors in the economic value to England of conquering Canada. With this mixture of events coming together, Queen Anne decided to endorse an invasion of Canada along the same plans that had been put forth in 1709. Forces would be divided into two groups, with one approaching Quebec through the Champlain Valley and Montreal from the south, and a second amphibious invasion coming up the St. Lawrence River from the north. The group coming through the Champlain Valley was under the command of Nicholson, while Walker would personally lead the naval forces moving up through the St. Lawrence. The two groups would rendezvous at Quebec. Immediately, problems appeared when it became clear that the cooperative spirit from the previous raid had vanished. Considering that the last time the New England colonists had come together to prepare for an attack on Quebec, that the English had ghosted them, it should not be much of a surprise that they were seriously lacking in enthusiasm this time. Likewise, the English found that they were not the biggest fans of working alongside the colonists, especially those from Massachusetts. The biggest complaint being that the colonists from Massachusetts did not skip out on an opportunity to make a profit, and were more than willing to price gouge the English who were in the colony preparing for the invasion. The English were likewise facing some very complex problems when it came to the strategic planning for the mission. The biggest problem that they faced was that trip along the St. Lawrence River. The St. Lawrence River is difficult to navigate under the best conditions. Unpredictable currents, frequent fog, and rocky outcroppings make navigation difficult. Worse, these fears existed when coming up the river in small sloops for trade. The idea of moving a warship through the waters was that much worse. All of this was compounded by the utterly baffling behavior of the mission's leader, Sir Hovedon Walker. Walker was an experienced rear admiral, which that's great and all, but the guy lacked any sense of confidence in his mission. Seriously, Walker was convinced that the mission was going to be a failure and did not make any attempts to hide his feelings from anybody, including the men under his command. And it isn't as though there was a specific complaint he had either. It was everything. Understandably, nobody really wants to serve under a guy who has zero confidence in his mission, meaning that the desertion rate was high. Walker was likewise growing increasingly frustrated with the Massachusetts colonists, who seemed to challenge him and refused to follow orders at every single stage. Dudley did his best to try to smooth over the situation, 
However, he was stuck in a difficult spot himself. Despite wanting to try to keep everybody calm, the colonists did not like Dudley, nor did they like having crown officials in the colony, as historically that did not go well for them. Walker, likewise, did not like Dudley because he blamed his constant problems with the colonists on Dudley and assumed that he was complicit. All problems and frustrations aside, however, the planning did continue and progressed through the summer months of 1711. For their part, the French were aware this was all going on. For Vaudreuil, he was staring at a large British army, getting ready to invade with only 2,300 men of his own to defend the colony. Walker was coming with some 12,000 under his command. The British would finally begin moving on July 13th, with Walker sailing north. The land invasion was going to launch from Albany and move first to Montreal, and then finally to the target of Quebec. Throughout August, Nicholson and his men moved north towards Lake Champlain. By all accounts, this part of the mission did go well. Nicholson made good progress, and by the middle of September, he was in position to move against Montreal. Well, things on the ground were going well, and in fact, Nicholson was able to make a trek with minimal contact from the French and Indian forces. The main group for the invasion was with Walker, preparing to head up the St. Lawrence. When they entered the river on August 21st, they had hit that part of the mission that so deeply concerned Walker and made him so completely sour on the mission altogether. Unfortunately for Walker, his fears are going to end up being completely justified. The unpredictable currents were making it a battle to keep the ships on course. If you look at a map, the northern portion of the St. Lawrence River is exceptionally wide, over 100 miles at its widest point. Getting pushed off course there isn't ideal, of course, but it's also not a total catastrophe. Further down, however, the river rapidly narrows, down to just 30 miles across, becoming more unpredictable and treacherous as it narrows. Two days after entering the river, on August 23rd, seven of the ships of Walker's fleet ended up running into rocks. What ensued was a disastrous blow to the mission. Over 900 people aboard these ships, including nearly 750 British regulars, were killed. If Walker had lacked confidence in the mission before this disaster, a disaster that he had himself been long concerned of, after the incident, he had had enough. Despite still standing 11,000 troops strong and vastly outnumbering the combined French and Indian forces, Walker called it a day and abandoned the mission entirely. There would be no assault on Quebec. There was brief talk of a second offensive in Newfoundland, something intended to help them all save face. However, in short order, that plan was also scrapped as Walker sailed out of the St. Lawrence and right back across the Atlantic. It took about a month for the news to reach Nicholson that the game was over and that Walker was busy speeding back towards London. By that point, Nicholson had been making steady progress and was reportedly enraged at the news that the mission had been called off. What came after the collapse of the mission was a season of finger-pointing. The colonists were quick to blame Walker for the failure, while Walker pointed his finger at Dudley and the Massachusetts colonists in general. Walker claimed that the mission failed in large part because the colonists in Massachusetts 
weren't more interested in making a profit than fighting for the empire. It marked a diplomatic defeat as well as the Iroquois once again returned to neutrality. There would not be a third attempt on Quebec, as by the time 1712 rolled around, everybody had become pretty sick of war. The powers in Europe were now seriously engaging in peace talks, with the British generally enjoying the advantage in the negotiations. Before we wrap up this war entirely, we do need to briefly travel back down to the south and get you caught up on the second front of this war. While the Southern Theater was not as active as the Northern Theater, there was still action there. The colonists, chiefly those from Carolina, were still able to score a few major victories as the war wound on. During the summer of 1706, a combined, though still small, Spanish and French force was assembling in St. Augustine, where they were making preparations for an attack against Carolina. Once assembled, the force set out on a flotilla of ships heading towards the Carolina coast. Things immediately got off to a rocky start, however, when the ship, La Briante, was attacked by a Dutch ship and became separated from the rest of the flotilla. Now, the good news is that the ship did not sink. However, it did sustain significant damage and was left behind, hobbling as best as it could to catch up with the remainder of the flotilla. With La Briante now floating off by itself, the remainder of the flotilla held together and landed near Charleston in modern-day South Carolina on August the 27th. Under the command of Jacques Lefebvre, the landing force immediately demanded that Carolina surrender. Having been informed of the approaching naval force, the Carolina militia had already assembled. The Carolina colonists were not interested in quick capitulation and rejected the demand to surrender. On the morning of August 29th, the French and Spanish forces split into two columns, with orders to go cause general mayhem and damage in the Carolina countryside. It does not really appear that this move was Lefebvre trying to start a more full-scale battle, but likely was meant to encourage Carolinians to agree to the surrender. However, things did not go as planned for Lefebvre. One of the two columns ran into trouble after it decided that it was a good time to stop and eat some chicken. Causing general mayhem is clearly a lot of work, and the soldiers got hungry. They decided to stop and cook a handful of chickens that they had looted from local farms. While hanging out and having their chicken dinner, they were discovered and subsequently routed by the Carolina militia. Lefebvre now had a few problems on his hands. First, he had to deal with the fact that he had just lost a chunk of his already small force to a detachment of militia. Second, in that moment, Lefebvre must have realized that momentum was not on his side. Following their victory, there was now no hope that Carolina was going to surrender. Lefebvre also realized that this was not going to work out well for him and that it was time to hightail it out of there before the situation got worse. Very quickly, the combined Spanish and French forces got back on their boats and set sail back towards St. Augustine, leaving the colonists to celebrate their victory. You would think that this would be the end of it. The convoy is sailing back to St. Augustine. Carolina has won the day. Carolina, not wanting to push their luck, did not give chase. So the battle was over, right? Not quite. Remember that ship that had gotten separated from the flotilla? La Briante? 
despite being seriously damaged in the battle with the Dutch ship. The Le Brillante managed to finally reach port near Charleston. The men quickly got off the ship and then marched directly on the city, apparently completely oblivious that Lefebvre had already left. It is indeed curious that there really does not seem to be any evidence that the men on the ship noticed, or possibly didn't care, that Lefebvre and his men were gone. They carried on as though the situation was perfectly fine. Unfortunately for the men, the situation definitely was not perfectly fine. The Carolina militia responded aggressively and quickly defeated the majority of the men from the ship. Just to add some salt to that wound, while the militia was busy dealing with the men, another detachment made their way around the battle and managed to make it all the way back to the Brillante, which was parked in the harbor. While the men from the ship were busy being routed by the Carolina militia and trying not to die, this other group went ahead and seized control of the ship. By the time that the dust had settled, the Carolina militia had killed more than 30 from the combined force and had taken over 300 prisoners. It was a total victory. For the most part, neither the Spanish nor the French had much interest after that in missions against Carolina. The British did make a few more overtures towards offensive battles themselves, however, those battles produced little in the way of results. Carolina would continue assaults against local Indian tribes. This would lead to a particularly brutal assault on the Tuscarora tribe. The conflict, which would become known as the Tuscarora War, saw multiple back-and-forth attacks by both sides. The final outcome of the war was that the Tuscarora tribe was forced north, where they would eventually end up joining the Iroquois. The War of Spanish Succession, and hence Queen Anne's War, would come to an end with the Peace of Utrecht, signed in April of 1713. In Europe, the peace included that Philip V could take the Spanish throne, hence establishing the Spanish Bourbon dynasty, as long as it was agreed that the French and Spanish thrones must always remain separate. While the French would retain control over the majority of Canada, they were forced to hand over Newfoundland, as well as the territory that had once been Acadia. The transfer of Acadia to the British came much to the delight of New Englanders, who had grown tired of frontier attacks in Maine, something that had now plagued the colonies for well over 30 years. Possibly the biggest outcome of the war for our colonies was that there was suddenly a newfound security. The war had managed to push the frontiers away from the major settlements and up and down the eastern seaboard it had helped clear the threat of attacks from Native Americans. We had talked about colonial growth back in episode 3.9. Much of that growth can be attributed to the frontiers being moved out, which in turn saved the colonists from having to fight costly border wars. One of the biggest lingering issues in the wake of the war would be unanswered questions about the borders between the French and the British colonies in North America. The confusing status of the treaty would, some 30 years later, help lead to another conflict between the French and the British. However, just know that we are going to spend a whole lot of time this season talking about wars between the British and the French in the North American colonies. The war would also have a large effect upon the colonial economy. We have already talked about how, in the wake of the overthrow of the Dominion of New England, the colonists had turned to the issuance of paper money. 
the cost of Queen Anne's War had been so draining on the colonial economies that the result was a marked increase in the use of paper currency throughout the colonies. This rapid expansion of paper currency in the colonies is going to help fuel the economic boom that is going to come to define the coming decades. Queen Anne's War, in many ways, marks the end of one era and the beginning of another era in colonial history for the British colonies in North America. What had been a state of near-constant warfare since 1675 had now come to an end. Following the Peace of Utrecht, it would not be until the 1740s that another period of warfare would grip the colonies. It is during this period of peace that the economy, population, and indeed the very identity of the colonies would have a chance to grow and develop. While Queen Anne's War is so often an afterthought in American history, it would prove to be something of a stage-setting war for the conflicts of the coming century. It was the war that helped clear the way and make possible the massive expansion of the colonies during the 18th century that would help position them for the events of the next 50 years. Next time, we are going to stay down in the south in Carolina. Of course, today, there are two Carolinas, north and south. Next time, we are going to explore exactly why that is. Until then, I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and staying safe. And I will see you back here next time as we prepare to split up the Carolinas. Carolinas.